the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. And welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. This week, I'm speaking with Jed Richardson, who is an applied microeconomist focused on educational policy. He's currently an assistant scientist with the Wisconsin Evaluation Collaborative. He's the principal investigator on multiple evaluations of state policies and district academic programs. He has studied the design of school accountability systems, basic needs insecurity among college students, and impacts of student risk factors such as placement in and out of home care, even contact with the juvenile justice system. Now, prior to joining the WEC, Jed served as acting director and managing director of the Wisconsin Hope Lab as an associate director and economist at the Value Added Research Center. He received his PhD in economics from the University of California, Davis. Now, we often speak about having impact in the programs that we delivered, and what I really appreciate is that Jed shares his thoughts on ways we can ensure that this impact happens. He's thought deeply about how whether we know what we do makes a difference and how to do that with both a human lens and an economic lens. Now, if you like what you're hearing, connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com. Follow us on Twitter at IntersectionEd. We're even on Facebook. And we really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and you leave a review. Here's my conversation with Dr. Jed Richardson. Dr. Jed Richardson, welcome so much to the Intersection Education Podcast. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I am wonderful. Well, one of the main topics that I'm really excited to speak to you about is how educational systems spend their money. And I know that that's something that you have looked at and you've looked at some different programs. And interestingly enough, what I like is you come at it through an economist's lens. And I'm interested to know if you've seen any patterns in programs that you found to be the most effective, anything that that schools or education systems might be able to apply to their their settings to increase their impact. Sure, you know the first thing I'd like to talk about is what the economist lens is because I think uh, <laughs> probably a good idea. Eh? Yeah, I think it's often uh, misunderstood, and uh, for some reason, my colleagues and I have gained reputations that I, I'm not sure are always fair, but probably come from some amount of truth. Um, you know. I, Economists have really branched out in the last 25 years to all kinds of different topics that have traditionally been in the wheelhouse of other social sciences, like, um, you know, purely education researchers, um, psychologists, sociologists, political scientists. Um, and and there have been a few things that have contributed to that that are um, one is unique to the economist or the economics profession itself is that. In the early 90s, uh, microeconometrics went under, or which is you know the study of the statistics um, behind uh, microeconomics, 
underwent what uh, the economist Josh Angris calls the credibility revolution, where economists really started thinking hard about, you know, these analyses that we're doing, do they really show what we think they show? You know, when you think about a program, is it the program itself that is creating these benefits or is the program just attracting students who are already good at what they do? Right. Um, so when you say, oh, look, at students in this program are doing great. Well, maybe they were doing great already. Right. Um, the, uh, so the, the rich school conundrum about, okay, if we put something yep. in this place where they have got all the socioeconomic benefits, um, is it the program really being the driver of that or is it the underlying socioeconomic um, um, backgrounds of the students? Yes, which is a, a very important question for a couple of reasons. One is if you're measuring the wrong thing, if you're just measuring the socioeconomic backgrounds of the students, then you don't know if that program works or right. not. Um, and the second thing is that I think that, you know, we'll probably get into this because uh, we always seem to in these conversations is, you know, how do we look at a rich school versus a school that where kids come from a lot of poverty and how do we compare them in any way? in any meaningful way when they're entirely different contexts. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, economists really were some of the first in the social sciences to really focus on trying to get that right as much as possible, to be measuring the right things. Um, and so they were leaders in that. The other thing is that, you know, in the early 90s, as we all know, the availability of computing power and data just supercharged. Um, right. And that trend continues today, you know, compared to the other social scientists, uh, people attracted to the econ profession often are attracted to math and statistics. Um, in the old days, I think, when the profession was largely uh, white males, um, which is still something that um, continues through this day, although it's improving, um, a lot of economists came to the profession through statistics. Um, through baseball statistics, especially a lot of like baseball stat heads became economists. Well, when data and computing became readily available, those skills, those mathematical um, quantitative skills really um, received a premium. And so the economists were really the first to, to charge forward into that world. And I think because of that have, um, really been involved in other subject matters that they hadn't been previously. Um, some people like that, some people don't. Um, in general, the way that economics differs from other social scientists or other social sciences is that we view human behavior through the lens of incentives or costs and benefits. You know, do the costs of this action outweigh the benefits of this action? Um, those costs and benefits don't have to be measured in dollars and cents. Um, you know, in the education world, often the costs are monetary. It's the, you know, you need a building. Um, the big costs are always staff. You need to hire quality staff to teach your students. Um, but in the education world, the benefits are almost never monetary. The benefits are some amorphous thing we call learning. And that learning um, the thing we think about the most are like math scores and reading scores, but there's also things like uh, socio-emotional development, those um, types of aspects, the non-cognitive aspects of 
uh, what we do in schools that are also important and are just now starting to get their due in the measurement sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but economists look at all that and we look at, um, and so we try to look at programs through that lens, like do the costs of this program, um, are they less than the benefits? Is this a good thing to do? Could we get more benefits for the same cost? Right. And so we often try to compare programs in that way. Um, one unfortunate aspect of that is that data on costs in education is quite bad. Um, it's really hard to know how much programs cost. Um, you know, programs get allocated some amount of money, but they often pull in staff that are not paid directly by the program. I'm sure that you know all about this. Um, they use in-kind donations if it's volunteer time, if it's space, that kind of thing. And so the actual costs are quite difficult. Um, and there's a whole line of research involved in trying to get good um, costs in education. And um, I know I know those people's work, but I, I'm definitely not an expert. And so it's more the idea that I mean, it's not it's not that the data is not shared. The data is often shared. It's more the complexity of a of a school and all these things working kind of cohesively. Or you've got you know exactly um, a volunteer parent who or or a community member who just walks through, and you don't think to attach that time or that in kind donation to the overall program cost. Right, and you know. Schools are not there to properly account for their costs. They're there right. to educate students. And so that, that entirely makes sense. And you're right, there, there is a ton of public data. You know, finding schools' budgets are actually quite easy. And we, in the States, we have a federal website that you know, does all of that. Um, but it doesn't really tell you the costs of, of specific parts of a school because you're right, that's all interlocked. <laughs> now um, we'll get into this, but... It's sure. it's reassuring that you're speaking this way because I know that many people when they listen to this interview with an economist they're they're probably going to be a bit trepidatious because we've got this idea of a bean counter and if it doesn't cost money uh, or you can't measure it then it's not going to be um, or measure it in a very defined and and, and yep. narrow view it's not going to be counted so just having you um, speak about and recognize the complexities of schools and all of the different things that go in is, yeah, is, is a little bit reassuring. Well, we're doing, we're trying to do better. Um, <laughs> we're trying to do better. It's uh, what people in my profession and in other professions call the the streetlight problem, where you're out at night, you lose your keys in the dark. And so you look under the streetlight and someone comes along and says, oh, did you lose them under the streetlight? I said, no, but it's the only place I can see. Right. Um, and so that's what we often do. Well, sometimes math and reading scores are the only place we can see. And so we measure them um, and ignore other aspects of education, which um, much to our detriment, I think that there's been a lot of research showing how important non-cognitive skills are. Um our lack of measurement so far um, doesn't make those skills any less important. Right. So you talk about those non-cognitive sure. skills. I'm, I'm interested to see um, if you've if you've seen any patterns. So you know you're taking that broad look. You're kind of um, expanding the role or the vision that an economist might have used to have. You're you're leveraging the computa- computational data or the computational power that you have. 
any trends or any things that you're kind of seeing or anything, any questions that you're particularly interested in pursuing? Oh, me personally. Um, you know, I, I'm really interested in all aspects of, of how education works from the high end, like policy, which is usually state policy. Um, so I, here I study Wisconsin state educational policy quite a bit, um, right down to some of the, of, of how school decisions and programs work. Um, I, I'm not an expert at all on anything like classroom practice, um, or even, you know, how to run a school, um, what we what we tend to focus on are much more narrow questions about does this aspect of what we're doing work and really digging into that. Um, but I, I am very interested in the socio-emotional aspects of what's going on in our classrooms. Um, I have three young kids, but one in first grade and, and one's in, uh, in 4K is which, what we call it here. And you know, they are learning all kinds of non-cognitive things. Um, my daughter's first grade teacher has done an outstanding job of building my daughter's confidence and um, helping her be feel happy and safe at school and like she is participating in her education. And there's not a single test that I can measure any of that with. Um, and so what goes on in your economist brain when you see the value <laughs> of those kind of things and then you're looking to capture that? So what would what would an economist's kind of uh, take on that non-cognitive, on that confidence? How would you go about perhaps giving value to that in your world? Right. So there are a couple of ways. One is more indirect in that um, there have been studies showing that, you know, Teachers who are good at promoting non-cognitive aspects of learning are also usually good at promoting cognitive aspects of learning. So in that sense, you know, we don't really care about math and reading test scores in third grade. Like, it's an interesting indicator, but like, no one ever got a job because they scored high on the third grade reading test. Um, you know, no one ever led a happy life because they only because they did well on a math test, what these are, are indicators of future success. And in that way, those indicators do work okay. We know that um, you know, teacher quality as measured by test score growth is correlated with all kinds of things we really like, um, like fewer teen pregnancies or um, higher earnings as an adult. So those are all good. And so we kind of go indirectly and say like, well, Teachers who are good at teaching reading also tend to be good at teaching all kinds of aspects of non-cognitive learning. And so there's kind of a backdoor um, way of looking at that. The other way is that I think we're just starting to measure non-cognitive aspects directly. Um, there are all kinds of instruments that are popping up to measure some of the socio-emotional learning that goes on. Um, the, a lot of them focus on young ages, um, which you know, may or may not be appropriate. Um, I think it's important to measure at those ages. I don't know that it's less important at other ages. Um, but I really, 
you know, that that's the other way where is just direct measurement of those aspects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like I said, and, and I think that it is really expanding the rule. Let's, let's talk about that friction because I know one of your role is to study it, but the other is to sometimes evaluate a program. And I know, and I spoke to this a bit earlier, is there's often that friction. It might come from a lack of understanding between researchers and practitioners. But I'm, I'm interested to know, when you think about the evaluation side of your work, how do you think that that, that evaluation can or should best serve students and educators? What is the value in that role? Well, I think you just said it right there. Um, the focus of evaluation should be to best serve students and educators. Um, and I think that that gets lost on both sides of the equation, both from the researcher's side of the equation and from the school's side of the equation. Um, and I think that's where the disconnect happens. You know, I've been involved in evaluation in some aspect all of my career. Um, right now, I work at the Wisconsin Evaluation Collaborative, where I am around some people who really have thought so deeply about how to do this right. Um, and I, it's, you know, I, I think, you know, later if we talk about, you know, some of my favorite experiences, this is one of them. Um, one of my favorite experiences as a professional is learning from these others that I work with. I think about, uh, you know, uh, Annalie Good, who I work with, or Robin Worth, who really think very deeply about how to do this right. Um, and so I think there, where the disconnect happens is in a couple ways. Um, often, I, I think that, you know, stepping back just a tad, the reason that outside evaluators are brought in is for credibility, really, that, you know, if you if you bring in someone who has no stake in whether this thing is working, that we trust their findings a little bit more. And so, but when those outside people come in, I think they're often seen as threatening. Um, oh, I'm going to be judged, you know, evaluate the, the word in itself is, is somewhat threatening. <laughs> um, we might, we, yeah, it'd be good if we maybe rebranded that, but <laughs> <laughs> we're not really in a branding business here. Um, and, or, you know, I think the other one is that, and I think this is a really valid, I think evaluation being threatening is a valid concern because I think that as evaluation is practiced, it can be threatening sometimes. Um, or the other one that I think is something I think about a lot is just, it's seen as an intrusion from outsiders who don't understand. Um, they don't understand the context. They don't know the school. They don't know these students. Um and that's true. You know, to some extent, when evaluators enter a picture, they don't know the context because schools are all very different. Um, it's not just the kind of rich, poor juxtaposition, that simple juxtaposition we talked about earlier, but there's all kinds of things that make schools different. Um, and so understanding those contexts is a, is a big part of what evaluators should be doing, but often we fail to do. Right. Um, Yeah. So you talk about understanding the context. 
Um, what are some of the other things that you have learned to really lower that friction? Kind of like best practices, maybe for both sides, because it's not just yep. the the program evaluator. It's oftentimes the teacher. What what kind of things do you have you seen work really well and, and be effective for lowering that friction? So one from the starting from the district and school point of view, I think it's really to take some of the stakes out of evaluation. Mm. You know, evaluation should be something that is thought of as a positive. Like we want to do the best possible things for our students. And we can't know that unless we try to look at how we're actually doing. Um, We've set out these outcomes that we said we want to improve. Are we actually doing that? Um, you know, that, that's a pretty natural and I think intuitive thing to do for most people understand why you would do that. Um, but I think that, you know, people who are highly, that highly invested in a program or a particular practice, um, see that more, see that program or practice as extensions of themselves. Oh, if the, if the practice isn't working, then I'm not working. I'm doing a bad job. Uh, we're often that is just not the case. It, it's just the program doesn't work here or the program needs to be rethought or, you know. And so I think the way that schools and districts approach it from and really setting the context of like, this is a positive thing. We want to learn about it. Uh, this is not you know, judging the people in this room, this is trying to figure out how this program can work better. Yeah. And, and so I think that framing is very important and it often gets lost. And I think the only reason it gets lost is usually just people forget to communicate or there's not enough time, you know, the, the normal parts of being humans. No, I agree. And, and I, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was because I believe that schools need to take that more, clinical practitioner approach and that's not my my word but absolutely we should be evaluating anything we do to a certain degree for the impact on learning and the impact on all the other outcomes that we have put on schools and so it's very interesting how how you put that and, and how you see that friction and how you look to to lower that it almost sounds like we need to have more of a culture where we're always f evaluating whether what we're doing is having impact. Yeah. And, and I think from the evaluate, I think you're real. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. And I think from an evaluator standpoint, I think people really do need, I think to bring down that friction, what I've seen be very effective that my colleagues are so good at is going into a room and right away acknowledging who the experts are. Mm. The experts are not the evaluators. Um, the experts are first the students experiencing the, the, whatever this is, you know, they experience it. Is it helping? What could help more? Uh, all those types of questions, the students are who knows that. And secondly, it's the people implementing that program or practice. You know, how does this work? Do you think it could be changed to work better? What would help you do your job better? And so I think what the evaluator becomes is an outside person to filter and frame. Um, someone who's experienced and trained to elicit those 
good reactions from people to collect that information and then be able to echo that information back in an organized and sensible way. Yeah. Well, that's a great, that's a good one. <laughs> there's yeah, well, there's if, the highlight. Only, that's the goal. Hey, that is, yeah, yeah. You're, you're right on. And of course, evaluation, like everything else is practiced by humans and, you know, people are always struggling to do better. And so, so I understand that. And I think our ideal though, is that we get to that point where it is purely collaborative and it is, Hey, I'm here to help. Um, what can we, let's figure this out together. Let's be collaborative. Let's talk about the results. Let's talk about what they mean, what you think they mean. Um, that that's really, that's, that's the big one. And that doesn't mean that the results change. Um, you know, part of bringing in an outside person or group to evaluate a program is that sometimes they do have to tell you things you don't want to hear or that are hard to hear. Perhaps you even want to hear them, but they're still hard. Um, and so there, there is a great value to independence, but I think that that independence can be practiced in a way that uh, that really focuses on how things can improve and where the work is and what people are saying. Um, that is the goal. Yeah, absolutely. We we referenced this a little bit earlier, um, but you've had uh, quite a few roles and you've worked with quite a few different educational systems. I mean, school age and university and, and, and different questions of research. I'm interested to know what your some of your favorite experiences have been as a role as a researcher and and, and kind of kind of how how you thought maybe some times where you really thought you were bringing together that vision that you just shared of of you know research and practice coming together what are some of those yeah. favorite experiences that you've had Yeah I well starting you know I was an educator uh I worked for I don't um, in the States, we have a program called Upward Bound, which is uh, pro it's a federal program, but it's implemented you know at the local level where basically take high school students who um, are from lower income backgrounds or whose parents didn't go to college and kind of walk them through the college process and help them through that throughout high school. And so I started there and that was, uh, I started as a tutor for Upward Bound when I was in college, when I was an undergrad, um, and then worked for them a different Upward Bound program for, you know, three or four years. And really, and that was a fantastic experience. Um, I've, uh, I think we'll talk about teachers and schools later. So I'll leave out my graduate, uh, experience which was fantastic but after you know after i graduated i worked for the value-added research center um, here at the university of wisconsin madison which was a really great experience about some very technical aspects of education research very statistics oriented and um, you know i learned a lot about the way different people think and how to um function in the role as as an outside presence who is also working with people who work in schools um and i still actually one of my uh, colleagues here brad carl is someone who i've known since way back then and um after 
after that, I, I went to work at the Wisconsin Hope Lab, which is also was here at the University of Wisconsin. And that was started by Sarah Goldrick-Rab, who is a sociologist and higher ed researcher. And the focus of the Hope Lab is pretty simple, which is to research about how to make college more affordable for students in a very broad sense, um, not just how to lower financial costs, although that was part of it, but also what kind of help, what kind of assistance, what kinds of structures make it most likely for students to be successful in college? Because there is nothing that is less affordable than the college degree you don't finish. Um, we see people who default on their loans, their student loans, are generally people who didn't finish their education. Um, and so they're not receiving the benefits in terms of higher wages, but they're still paying for their loans. Um, which, you know, in the States here is a, a really big topic of interest. But, you know, at the, at the Hope Lab, I, that was a really good experience for me. Number one, I worked with a ton of wonderful people who I still um, keep in touch with, um, people from all over the it, – it was a place that brought together many different kinds of researchers, lots of people from the education world, a few of us economists, uh, sociologists, qualitative – um, people who are really great at talking to others about their experiences to very quantitative um, people who, you know, worked behind a computer all day. Um, and I, I learned a lot from Sarah herself, who, you know, has a very specific vision of how things can work. But I think, and that, that was helpful for me to have someone who was that invested in the, in the product um, and, the, and the quality of the product. And I think she also is good at thinking big. Um, economists, we love the margins. That's where we work. We're always working at the margins. And there's, there's a great amount of value to that. But getting bogged down in details, which the margins often are, is something that Sarah tries to avoid. And she really tries to go for the big stuff. Like, let's try to change the big things. Um, like, why aren't we trying to change the big things? And, and I think that that is a really valuable lesson and perspective that I, um, that I hope to retain. Um, so that was, a, that was a very good experience for me. Um, I've stayed here at the University of Wisconsin. Right now I'm at the Wisconsin Evaluation Collaborative. Um, I could not, uh, I don't know how big we are, but I, I, I really enjoy every single one of my coworkers. I'm working with someone I've, people I've known for a very long time. Um, and just a lot of people who work really hard and think really hard about how to do this right. So um, I'm before, I guess one of the questions that I have is this idea of an evaluation co uh, collective um, is, yeah. is, is foreign to, to many people. So maybe can you go sure. through what, what does that, what is your main goal when sure. they formed this, um, this, this entity, what were they hoping to do and, and, and perhaps uh, outline maybe some of the, the main uh, people or the main entities sure. that, that you work with? Sure. So to start off with, we are um, part of the University of Wisconsin. We're within the School of Education um, and that we are within a very specific part of the School of Education called the Wisconsin Center for Education Research. 
Um, the Wisconsin Evaluation Collaborative, which is WEC for short, um, was started by three people, Brad Carl and Steve Kimball and Annalie Good, who are both, who are, who are all three extremely experienced people. Um, and the idea was to provide services for the public good, for all schools, districts, educators, especially in Wisconsin, although our work is not limited to Wisconsin, but that's where we focus and really providing these services to places that maybe think they can't afford it. Um, and I think that, you know, they've been really successful in that vision is that there's this great mixture of projects that come from our state education agency, projects that, you know, locally here from, um, from Madison, but also from Milwaukee and then all around the state. And I think we're really getting better at, you know, working with, people outside of our bubble in Madison, which is, which is really important because Madison is somewhat of an outlier in, in Wisconsin itself. So, um, that, that was the point of starting this is to really provide these services. We have something in Wisconsin. I'm a Minnesotan. So I, I grew up for those of you not uh, interested in, uh, interstate politics. Uh, here's your, 10 seconds you can turn off. Um, <laughs> Fast Minnesota, forward to 15, yeah. <laughs> I, I grew up very close to the Wisconsin border, and so there's always this like rivalry, you know, our sports teams play each other, all this business. So I grew up in Minnesota. Um, I, when we, my wife and I moved here from California uh, many years ago to Wisconsin, and um, something I learned about in Wisconsin that uh, I just am so, I, I'm just in love with it, is this thing called the Wisconsin idea, which is that, the research and resources of a big place like the University of Wisconsin-Madison are contributing directly to the health and benefit of all Wisconsin residents. That there's really this partnership between the, this high-end research institution and the whole state to help everybody. Um, and that's a really neat thing. And it's been around for, you know, I don't know when it started, but it's been around for a very long time. And WEC really took that Wisconsin idea very seriously. Like, if I had to sum it up, what does WEC do? Its mission is to pursue the Wisconsin idea and help these um, smaller districts, smaller schools, um, but also the the, the big ones um, for the public benefit. Well, I um, think that if you believe in educational institutions – at all different levels, that sounds like the right the right perspective to have, doesn't it mean? <laughs> to, yes. to do well, good. Yeah, it really is. And um, you know, it's to do this kind of work is not something that faculty normally do. I'm not a faculty member, and um some of the people I work with have kind of dual roles as faculty and researchers. But for the most part, we're just researchers is because faculty have different incentives. Like there's this really, really strong incentive to publish a lot. Like that's how they get their, keep their job, get their promotion, all those kinds of things. Um, we are not, we, we aren't part of that world. And so our incentives are quite different. Um, and so to engage in this work and to engage in it in, in the way that the work deserves to be done as, as 
high quality as possible, I think really does take a different set of incentives. Yeah. And I found it interesting, even your title, um, not assistant professor, but assistant scientist. Uh, I kind of <laughs> yeah. like that. I like, I like that you've taken, you know, yeah, we, we, we are in a different role here and we've got different, as you said, incentives and we're seeking different things. I, I like that distinction. Yes. Yeah. It's just, it's a, it's a bland university title in one way, but it is informative in another. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's get into maybe one aspect and I, and I realize that you have a multitude, but one of the things I'm interested in is some of the different programs that have sought to help students who are struggling to meet their basic needs. And this is something that you've looked at. You know, universities are not so different than schools. We see some students who are struggling with some of the same in, uh, issues, you know, just kind of food and housing and, and just mm-hmm. living. Um, I'm interested in, in two different things. What prompted you to start looking at issues related to poverty, financial hardship? And I, I'm interested also in what's interesting to an economist about students who might need some aid to help them complete their program. Right. So that, that's a really uh, good and multifaceted question. It's hard to think about where to uh, start. I will say that I have always been interested in these issues. I think that, you know, different different researchers and different people are interested in all kinds of different things. But this idea of how it can be harder for some students to get the same amount of education is has always been interesting to me, just from a very personal perspective. Um, the way it is interesting to economists is... Uh, is it's the same way, which is that for these students, if you come from a high poverty background or there's some other difficult experience in your background, um, and, and students have all kinds, you know, students even from very wealthy backgrounds can have all kinds of difficulties in their background, um, whether that's domestic violence or drug abuse. Um, sometimes those factors are more prevalent um, for people living in poverty, but but not but not always, um, and not to the extent that sometimes we believe. But um, you know, students, especially students from high poverty backgrounds, it's just harder. And so when I hear just harder as an economist, I think, oh, it's higher cost, and that's not higher cost like a higher grocery bill. That's all of the costs. Um, thinking about it like. Okay, so we didn't have as many books growing up because we just didn't have that much enough money to have those in our house. So maybe it takes me a little longer in kindergarten and first grade to learn to read because I started behind everyone else. Um, So I have to work that much harder to catch up. Or my mom has to work the, the early shift, so she can't get me to school. So... It's harder for that to happen. Sometimes I miss if my ride doesn't show up. It's higher cost. Maybe I didn't attend a high-quality child care center. And so getting used to the school environment is something I need to do that other kids don't. Those are all higher costs. Um, and those aren't just, you know, those are like little kids, higher costs. But all of those extend throughout K-12, um, throughout university, those are those are always higher costs. Yet, and th- this comes from my own personal view, is that 
all people have equal value and that part of our job as public educators is to do our best that everyone can succeed. You're here. And, and so the idea is how do we lower those costs? Uh, more or less it's how do we lower those costs? And there are all kinds of things that you know way more than I do about this, but that educators do to lower those costs for students who just have higher costs. Like maybe they, they figure out, they help the student figure out the bus route or they stay after school to help them read or, you know, to, to work on their reading with them or they send some books home or, um, they find a food pantry or housing assistance. You know, our entire public assistance system is to some extent a way of just lowering costs for, um, for, for families with more need. Um, it's not a great system, but that's what the system should be doing. Um, and so that's what we do as economists is how do we, you know, we think about how do we lower the costs? Um, it sounds cold, but it's uh, it's the same version of what educators are doing. Yeah. And so how I got involved with this research at the college level was um, a little bit of, or actually entirely just association with some people who um, were, were thinking really hard about this long before I was ever involved. Um, at the Wisconsin Hope Lab, um, before it was the Wisconsin Hope Lab, there was a project and and part of that project was to interview college students about their experiences. And this was back in 2008. And one of the themes that came up that surprised everybody was that these, that some of these students at, at you know, colleges that are quite well-known and, and um, large and respected, um, some of these students didn't have places to live hmm. or they didn't have enough to eat in, not in the way that like, Oh, I have to eat ramen, that kind of thing. But like, I just don't have enough to eat most of the time, or I'm not getting anything nutritious ever. Um, you know, that kind of like, like actual hunger. And so they, they started getting, trying to work up some research on this. The hope lab formed via gift from what used to be the um, Great Lakes, which is a um, student loan servicing group that is located here in Madison and does quite a bit of philanthropy, um, especially for education. And via this Great Lakes gift, the Hope Lab was really able to devote some resources to the study of financial hardships in college, like, like not enough food and housing, um, what we call basic needs insecurity. Um, and, and often for researchers, that's very hard. It's hard to kick off, to really look at something until there's money, but it's hard to get money until you know something. Right. Um, it, yes, yes, there's a chicken and egg problem. Yeah, yeah. So this whole thread of research, which the, the Hope Center in Philadelphia has continued, um, really looks hard or tries to look as hard as possible, given, given our resources, uh, at these problems of um, food and housing insecurity in college. Now, 
I want to stay on the college question because sure. I feel like it's been getting a lot of press. Everyone from Malcolm Gladwell to now this whole thing about uh, uh, bribing people to get into schools. Uh, where do you think – it feels to me like people are really questioning the college system in the United States, here in Canada a little bit less. Uh, where do you think – you would start if you were to improve this system, knowing what you know and the research that you've done. Yeah. Okay. So I think where I would start and where I think people have made some inroads, but not enough is really getting it into people's heads that today's college students are not yesterday's college students and that the college environment is quite different. Um, the student that we think of as the traditional college student, you know, they enter when they're 18, right after they graduate high school, they have their parents' support, they're attending full-time. Those college students are really the minority now. Um, all of the non-traditional students who are no longer non-traditional, but people who are older, who are going to school part-time while they work, who don't have parental support, maybe they have kids of their own. Um, those are the majority college student now. And so this is an entirely, I, I want to get it into people's heads that that is the current situation. This is what we're thinking about. Also, just in the States, especially college costs way more than it used to. You know, one of the common pushbacks I hear for anything to help college students is I worked my way through college. They can do it too. Right. Um, that is no longer possible. Uh, the, College costs have grown at a much faster rate than the wages available to college students. And so, yes, while it's true that that my father and my grandfather could have worked their way through college, it is no longer true that my child can. Um, and so that would be my first is just that education so that people know this isn't kids aren't getting lazier. They're not doing less. They're actually working quite hard. Um, and we want to help those students who are working hard achieve success. That's that's the that's the base that I'm working from. The first here in the States, especially, is attacking some of the financial challenges of going to college. Um, I am a support. I do support the free college, we have what some people consider a movement here, but this idea that the first couple of years of some kind of post-secondary training would be free. Um, I know there are, there's all kinds of debate about this, about whether you'd be giving benefits to people who don't really have financial need. I care less about that. Um, I think often the, the places that you know, the community colleges, the technical colleges where this kind of free college exists are, are not places where very wealthy people typically send their kids anyway. Um, but I do think that some type, uh, not I think, I know that some type of post-secondary training is really necessary for earning a livable wage. So we need to get students through these, you know, a year of training, perhaps two years of training to get a job that's actually going to give them enough money to live. The What I like about the free college is that it's simple. It's not hard to communicate. You just tell a kid and they get it. 
Um, you can tell anyone and they get it. Our financial system now is, is based on very high sticker prices with often high amounts of financial aid, but students don't know that. Um, I like the simplicity of that, of just making these things free. I also think that universal benefits often retain universal support. Um, programs that are just for low-income people come and go. Um, but people can't plan. There's too much uncertainty in programs that come and go to plan your entire post-secondary education. Um, it's too big a risk. It costs too much. I like, I like things that can be supported in the long term. And I think that something like free college has a better chance of being supported. It's interesting to hear an economist say that the universal programs are preferable to targeted programs. I think that's interesting. And I'm trying to think of different instances in my life or in different policies that we have that might benefit from that approach. Right. Um, well, you know, the big one that we, that we in the States struggle with that you in Canada have seemed to arrive at your own solution for is like, is healthcare. Um, that, you know, we've tried for a long time to plug holes via Medicaid, you know, assistance that's targeted to people of certain income levels. But there are all kinds of costs associated with that. It's hard to figure out people's income level. It takes a lot of administration. It takes a lot of government. It takes a lot of employees. Um, you know, those are all costs, too. And it, to the extent that those complicated systems actually scare people away from using them, then we're failing in in our goals. And so I do see, uh, I know a lot of economists would disagree with me on this, but I do see political benefits and simplicity benefits from programs that are universal, even if they might be less efficient on the surface. Right. Let, let's move kind of up that that chain because we were talking um, specifically about college and then we, we got into universal benefits. I'd like sure. to know, is there, is there something about learning your education that you believe is true that, that you get a lot of pushback um, or, or people disagree with you about? Well, so the one thing that I get the most, I don't know that people disagree with me on this, but whenever I say it, people are kind of look at me like, what are you talking about? Um, I really think that we, when we talk about education and especially education data and outcomes like test scores and that kind of thing, that we spend way too much time thinking about schools. Um, it's, you know, every time this latest round of international test scores comes out, we start fretting and say, oh, how come ours aren't as high as Finland's or how come ours aren't as high as Taiwan's? Um, what are our schools not doing that their schools are doing? And I think that that is a false premise. And I, I, whenever I hear those things, I just always want to change the conversation back away from schools to, well, these societies are functioning differently than ours. You know, when you look at um, especially poverty and all of all of the difficulties that and challenges that poverty brings. Um, I think that focusing on how we can make students' lives better in general, not just education, will also benefit their education. You look at the correlation between test scores and income levels, and it's strong. 
It's very, very strong. Um, and so when, whenever, especially in the States, we get these test scores, I'm like, oh, we're failing, our schools are terrible. I, I just, that kind of thinking I think is just totally wrong. And we should be thinking more about these test scores as a societal um, evaluation rather than as simply an educational evaluation. And, I, and these are problems that aren't going to be overcome with a marginal change to how we teach kids. They're just not. Um, you can't, if a, a student is growing up, say every year my parent makes $30,000 more than your parent, how are you going to make up that resource difference with some small program in third grade? Uh, that's a big ask of that program, I think. And so I'd like people to think more about some some bigger issues that we might focus on. It's valuable to talk about how we can improve education. In fact, my whole career is devoted to that, but I, I don't think it's the only thing. And, and sometimes I think we, we miss the forest for the trees. Yeah. I think that there's a developing uh, discussion around those topics. I recently, we saw uh, Posse Salberg, who's originally from Finland, one of the, you know, the high PISA yeah. scores and all that kind of stuff. Always. And, um, and he was talking about the same thing. He goes, yeah, teacher is really important, but it's, you know, fourth or fifth down the list of things in a student's oh, yeah. life that, that actually affect his edu their educational outcomes. So, yeah, that's that whole societal benefit, the whole support network, uh, I think is a really important discussion that we need to have. And then also we need to focus on what we can um, very clearly have impact in. So yeah, we can up Always. the teaching and learning, but we realize that we're working in a much more complicated system. Yes. And I, I would like to extend that realization to more people. Yeah, absolutely. You know what, I, I'm also, you know, obviously as a teacher, uh, I, I'm interested in learning environments. And so I'd like to, I'd like you to think back on, on perhaps the best learning experiences that you've had, um, the places where you felt the, the learning took place, that the whole environment was set up. What was that place and what about it made it powerful? Was it the people? Were it the activities? What what helped make learning really great in that instance? Every time you ask me, I come back or when I when I first you know kind of thought through this question, uh, it it always comes back to people for me. Okay. Um all of my best learning experiences involved um people, not always teachers. Um but you know, I think Two pop in my mind right away. One is I had a wonderful third grade teacher named Miss Bardsveen, who I think every student in her class felt cared for. And that was really important. You know, um, you're a young kid and, and just feeling like someone cares. You know, my parent, I have very supportive parents. I was very fortunate in that way. But having another adult who cares about you is always a good thing. Um, and and I, I felt like that was a great learning environment. The opposite end of that spectrum, um, not that I didn't feel cared for, but that um, it was just a whole other level was when I went to graduate school. I, I got so lucky. I went to the University of California, Davis. And while I was there, um, in our, our specialized field was public economics and labor economics. And that group of um, faculty and students was just perfect for me and I think for a lot of people. Uh, we had 
five or six faculty members who were all very active researchers, but also just equally devoted to making sure that their graduate students could learn and had opportunities to learn and the time with them to learn. Um, and from what I understand, that is not common in graduate programs, especially in economics. I only have experience with one. Um, but I just really, really benefited from being a, a part of that group. Um, I also, I don't know if that attitude seeped down or if I just got doubly lucky, but the students that I was with were wonderful. Um, a lot of times graduate school can be very competitive. We're all looking for the same jobs eventually and pursuing the same lines of research and all that, but there was never that. And it, it that added, that environment started well before I was there. Just this environment of your success is my success. You know, we all want to do well and we all are here to help each other. Um, the amount of time I spent um, with people who are still just outstanding friends of mine figuring things out um, is probably one of the most valuable learning experiences I've ever had. Yeah. And that is interesting because a lot of our guests have brought up this idea of supportive community and, yeah. and how that that is so important to their learning environments, to them as people. And, and, and you hit on that again. And I think that that's a big theme that's emerging from from different people from from all around. So that's very yeah. interesting. I, it, was, it was great. And I still benefit from that community today. I have a, a text chain with several friends of mine where we talk about econometric problems we're having. And uh, I still use that community. <laughs> That's outstanding. It sounds like a fun text chain. I know. I know, everyone, <laughs> I know all, all the listeners will just love to get on that one. <laughs> when, well, if you ever run a text chain around, uh, you know, student assessment in something, like that, I'm sure it's equally as riveting to, to many yeah, other people. I might pass. Yeah. <laughs> um, a couple quick hitters to, to finish it off. Do you have sure. a favorite app, website, or media that you, that you like or that you tell people to listen to, look at? Uh, still books. I still, nice. I'm a book guy. I, I was an it. English major in undergrad, and I'm uh, I'm always I've always been a book guy. All right, let's go there. Do you have uh, what are some books that you often um, recommend to people? Okay, so growing up, I worked in the children's division of the Rochester Public Library for almost five years, and so many of the books that I think are wonderful are children's books. Uh, and I I have young kids now, so I'm really like right in the right <laughs> in the middle of that. Yeah. Um, so my favorite, I, Harry Potter, I'm in love with it. I still am. I, one of my students, when I worked in Upward Bound, one of my students was uh, an immigrant from a country where there was quite a bit of war. And he came here not knowing a lot of people and not knowing English. And he taught himself to read by, by reading Harry Potter because he loved him so much. And I still, that's always stuck with me. Um, I, I love good night moon. I think it's, uh, there's gotta be a reason why people love it. Right. Um, <laughs> just was reading it the other night to my, uh, young two-year-old. So it's all, I love it too. <laughs> people talk about the greatest books of all time and like, no one ever says good night moon. And I think, like, but everyone has it, That's like right. everyone owns that book. Um, 
and anything by Mo Willems. If I don't know yeah. if you know him for your you kids, bet, too, absolutely. About my kids have taught themselves to read of using those books, and I uh, <laughs> nothing has been more valuable in my kids' life than well. I hope that our, their parents have, but <laughs> I know that they're they're reading. They just love it, and they get so much pleasure out of it yeah. that that's uh, really a gift. Next one is: There anything that you do every day or most days that keeps you well and healthy, available to you know be uh, there for your family, be there for your work? Yep. Um, well, this is my first year that I biked all winter long. Excellent. I do live in Wisconsin, so that's not entirely easy but one of my co-workers convinced brad carl a uh, co-worker and old friend convinced me that it was possible and i'm loving it um i thought i would hate it but i just like being outside and it's cold and it's brisk and you're still getting exercise every other winter i've just felt like i get unhealthy and then i have to figure it out again in the spring not this year that's great. Yeah. Um, lastly, do you have an organization or a person who really inspires you? And this could be lifelong or it could be, you know, something more recent. Yeah. Uh, organization is I love Partners in Health. Um, I don't know if you know about their work, but they provide health care to all kinds of places around the world that don't have great access. But they don't just provide health care. They also provide teaching hospitals um, to train um local people in local contexts and it's just a wonderful organization and um, my wife and i have contributed to it for years um it's our but our only consistent one mm -hmm. um people right now um any leader who can focus on all of the things we have in common and all of the things that unify us um, within our country and our world um i think so much of what we see is designed to divide us um and in fact, entire government programs are designed to divide us, uh, apparently. And so any, any leader who can look past that and step out of the fight and focus on what we have in common, I'm, uh, I'm inspired by that. Excellent. Now, what's next for you? What are some of the questions or problems that you're looking at? What is some of the research you're looking to conduct over the, the next little bit? Well, right now, my colleague Grant Sim and I are working very hard at uh, a quantitative evaluation of something called the Achievement Gap Reduction Program, which is a Wisconsin state program that provides funding to uh, schools, specifically kindergarten through third grade, um, to reduce class sizes, provide instructional coaching, and provide tutoring um, in an effort to reduce achievement gaps throughout the state. And so we are working very hard um, to evaluate that program, which is, is quite well-funded in Wisconsin. Excellent. Um, I'm also working with my colleague, Brad Carl, on a program called Every Child Thrives, which is one of the most ambitious programs I've seen. It's, a, it's in a small community here in Wisconsin, and they are trying to attack, they're attacks, maybe not the right word, but they are really working hard on um, getting students ready for kindergarten through all kinds of community interventions. They're really um, putting their money where their mouth is and developing a lot of uh, programs and structures in a very thoughtful way. And it's one, it's comprehensive and it's impressive. And so um, we are working on the data aspects of that program. Yeah, that's excellent. 
Um, yeah, it's impressive what they're doing. Yeah. And, and it's also impressive that, you know, we're spending this money, but we're ensuring that we're having impact and we're getting, you know, uh, that's why I, I think that the role that you have is, is really important to know whether those public dollars are being well spent and how we might be able to tweak or change in order to have a bigger impact if we're spending all this money. Yeah, that's what we're trying. That's what they want to do. And they've asked us to help. So, um, I, I just kudos to them for really, really doing what needs to be done. All right. Um, what's the best way for people to connect with you and maybe follow along this research? Is it, um, do you know, the University of um, Wisconsin-Madison website or kind of academic journals or? Yeah. So at the Wisconsin Evaluation Collaborative, we have our own website where we do post um the aspects of our research that we can post, Actually, um, yeah. we can't always, but there is quite a bit that is posted and it's public information. Um, me personally, email and phone always yeah. works as well. That sounds great. I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, getting different perspectives uh, really does I find it helpful, and I know that people like hearing about these uh, the work that you're doing, uh, about forming relationships between research and practice. So I just want to thank you so much. It's been really insightful. I, great conversation. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate it. I had a great time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. Just a reminder that you can connect with us on our website, intersectioneducation.com, on Twitter, intersection ed, or leave a review on iTunes. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.